The cause of Christ is worth living and dying for. Liu Zhenyig was born in China in 1958. He became a Christian when he was 16 years old. Liu became known as Brother Yun. Yun. In the 1980s and 90s, which is not too long ago, God caused Brother Yoon's changed life and his dedicated ministry efforts to develop a Christian house church network in China. You can read his biography of his life. It is called The Heavenly Man. In his book, there are several similarities between Brother Yoon and the men of the Bible, Old and New Testament. He grew up in a life of poverty, but God enabled him to bring the riches of the gospel to thousands of lives and to see change. He became a highly wanted man across many provinces of China. He was arrested several times, sentenced to many years in prison, and tortured in unspeakable ways. When he was in prison, he continued to minister to prison guards, many of which became born-again Christians. According to his book, he went without food and water for many days, but the Lord sustained him through his sufferings. After years of being in prison, uh, imprisoned three different times on three different accounts, he miraculously escaped a maximum security prison. Apparently, the doors had been conveniently left unlocked, and he was able to walk right through, passing by armed guards that didn't see him leave. Once he was out, he returned to Christian fellowship in the the house churches, but many of these Chinese Christians became fearful to allow him to use their homes for church because of how wanted he had become. He decided to escape China, to flee, and to become a refugee in Germany. He then dedicated his life to sending thousands of missionaries out from China into the countries between China and Israel, some of the least reached countries in the world where the gospel is still yet to go. The title of his autobiography, The Heavenly Man, was his nickname. That was what he was known by among the other brothers and sisters in Christ in China. It came from one night when he was being interrogated and asked many questions. And Brother Yun would only answer, when they asked him his name and where he was from, he would only answer them, I'm a heavenly man. I'm a heavenly man. Instead of revealing his name, which would have then, by association, got other Christians in trouble and even imprisoned. I think of the cause of Christ we sang about. I think of examples like Brother Yoon. And I wonder if any of us in this room, men or women, made new in Christ, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, living kingdom-minded, could be known by our friends as heavenly men heavenly women. Yes, the circumstances are are far different between there and here, but nonetheless, what would it take to be known as heavenly men 
and heavenly women. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven. Isn't that right? Well, does your passport show that? Can your accent be detected? Is there a strangeness about you? Does there seem to be something kind of foreign about your life? Do you smell different? Do you look different? Do you talk different? Is there a glow on your face that is a reflection of how your soul has been made well with the king of the universe? Could anybody mistake you for potentially moving because they look at your life and and wonder why you travel so light through life? Could some stop you and say, excuse me, are are you some sort of heavenly woman? Are you some sort of heavenly man? This morning we finish our summer series on eschatology, the doctrine of the end times or last things. Everything from the rapture of the church to the new heavens and the new earth is wrapping up this morning. And we still have one more eternal task before us before we leave this subject behind, at least into this summer. And that is this, to consider together how we might practice the heart and habits of the heavenly man himself, Jesus Christ. How what we have covered this summer will impact the way that we live practically. In preaching, it is said that explanation without application leads only to frustration. Again, explanation without application leads only to frustration. And there is a rule. The cure for dullness in the pulpit is not brilliance, but reality. And some of you can connect with that. I'm certainly thankful it doesn't rely on brilliance. Uh, But this summer, we've given a lot of explanation, haven't we? We've explained a lot of different things. We've talked about things that maybe got a little thick, um, some things that were seeming to be a little intellectual, theological. And maybe some of you have felt some level of frustration because you've had a hard time seeing how it applied to your everyday life. I'm not faulting you for that. It is human, and that is something that we need to address. Maybe we haven't had time to even digest some of these things and think really about how some of these topics have really impacted us practically and will change us forever. Well, this morning we're going to look at six practical applications to help us have a heart and habits of the heavenly-minded. So we can be known as a church of heavenly-minded people and that it would be in our heart and that it would be in our habits in life. This list of practical applications is by no means complete. It it is really endless, and so look at these six as really just starter applications. Um, it's, it's, It's my job this morning to just get you thinking, get you on the edge of your seat spiritually. You don't have to move forward yet, you know, but but to be thinking, okay, what am I gonna do 
as a result of thinking through this whole subject of the end times that we have this summer. On the back of your sheet, even, if you flip it over and just check it out for a second, I've provided some lines upon which you could uh, write specific personal applications. And again, uh, it could go on longer than that, or maybe there's just one or two this morning that really stand out to you that you have pulled away from this summer or even just by way of reminder this morning. I'd encourage you at any point to just flip that paper over, just begin to write. If you have any specific personal applications that the Spirit is leading in you in, in your heart. So let's get into the first one. The first is this. Live for God's kingdom, not yours. Live for God's kingdom, not yours. In our study of the end times this summer, we have seen several passages that have had these, these terms that are kind of used for kings, really, aren't they? You see thrones or a throne. You see crowns or a crown. You see decrees or laws that almost seem to have an authority that comes from someone like a king or someone in charge. You think of a kingdom, either a place that is a domain of someone who rules, and you think of subjects that you see in these passages that we have looked at this summer. You might think of war and kings making decisions to go to war against other kings and other kingdoms. Well, these kingly verses are primarily prophecies about Jesus coming to establish his earthly eternal kingdom. Careful to get both of those words in there. To establish his earthly eternal kingdom. Let me just read two verses for you that kind of sum up a lot of this kingly terms and kingly talk. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. This is before Jesus is even born and an angel is announcing that Jesus is coming. Luke 1, 32 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne, there it is, of his father David, and he will reign, there's another term, over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Over in Matthew chapter 25, a little bit later, is a verse that we've gone over, and you see some more kingly terms here. It says this, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus himself, comes in his glory, it will be power and glory when he returns, right? And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's almost like that is the great end. That is the great purpose. That is the great direction that all history is going. There's a throne right now in heaven that God rules and reigns from and on. And he's bringing that throne to this earth. And he's going to make all things new. And he's going to reign as king here on earth like he is now in heaven. That's really what we've been driving at. That really is what the, the big ending is. That's the whole mystery that has been revealed is that it is Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is going to bring the heavenly rule and reign to this earth. This kingdom theme and these kingly terms have been used from day one of creation. And they've gone to day one of the new creation, like we talked about last week. From day one of creation to, to day one of new creation, 
you see these terms being used. If you were just to look at your first verse in your Bibles, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are no kingly terms there, but there is a definition right there of the kingdom of God. Who is the king? It is God. None came before him. He's the eternal king. And he's created something. He's created a kingdom over which he'll reign, he'll rule. And it is the heavens and the earth. That is his domain. And then he fills it with all these things. And he's careful to to fill it. And all the things that he's going to fill it with reflect his rule and his reign. I believe if we skip ahead here, there, there is a slide that kind of gives you some of these verses. So maybe we can go uh, ahead to the kingdom of God in the scriptures. We can find that, Jacob. Thank you. Um, we'll get there in a second. So it is, here they are. Okay, so Genesis 1.1, in the same chapter, as he's filling his earthly kingdom in this heaven with all of these things, that he's going to reign and rule over, he finishes by creating man and woman, male and female, and he creates them after his likeness. Remember, he's the first king, and then he creates them, us, after him. So we have, in some way, a reflection of his kingliness, and this earth is our domain. He says in verse 28, God blessed them, male and female. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he says this, subdue it. That has to do with conquest. That's like if you were to subdue somebody else. You're taking them uh, underfoot. You're ruling over them. And it says, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every every living thing that moves on the earth. So God commands mankind to subdue and have dominion over it. Now, what happens? Chapter 3, sin comes. Satan brings temptation, man falls into sin. Guess what? This is the introduction now of another kingdom. The heavens and the earth are now frustrated from God's rule and reign over it. Now there's a rebel kingdom. Now there is a rival kingdom. It is not characterized by light, but by darkness, a spiritual darkness. And it has come across all the land, the heavens, and the earth. So the fall into sin, both the spiritual realm, those fallen angels, and those created human beings, all of us, after Adam and Eve, is now in this rival rebel kingdom against God. You fast forward a little bit, and you see in in Exodus 19.6, Israel becomes God's kingdom of priests, he calls them. He calls them a kingdom of priests. So God is not done extending his rule on this earth. And now he's going to use a people, a people group, a nation. And it is Israel. He says this in Exodus 19.6. And, and there are rebel nations. Let's picture all the other nations on the earth, the Canaanites, the Egyptians, and all these others that don't have God as their king. They have other gods as their kings, essentially. And God wants to reign through Israel on the earth in such a way that all the other nations can see his rule and reign. Fast forwarding a little bit in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, you see that Israel is not happy having God as their king and functioning as his kind of co-kings or under-kings. They want a human king instead. They go, oh, look at the world. 
their kingdoms, they're run by some guy who's dressed up real fancy. He's kind of a, a big guy. He's got a lot of smarts on the battlefield, and he's, we want someone like that. So instead of having God as their king, they ask for a human king. And guess what? First Kings 12, 19. Three kings into it, and the kingdom of Israel is divided. <laughs> it doesn't work well. Their plan to throw God to the side and say, give us a man. We want to follow somebody that we can admire. It doesn't work. And so the rest of the Old Testament is about this struggling kingdom of priests, the struggling people that God is to be their king, but they don't want him to be their king. Second Samuel chapter 7 is a glimmer of hope, though. Second Samuel 7.16, God promises a human king who will reign forever in Israel. So that takes you to now the New Testament. In the New Testament, you keep seeing the king, kingly terms used. So you go into Matthew and, and you start to see uh, from the very beginning to the very end of just the book of Matthew, this man Jesus is born. He's born and the current king over the realm of the Jews is, knows this baby as the king of the Jews. He calls him that. He's scared of this baby. Herod was scared of a baby. He was scared of a baby because he knew this baby would come to challenge his kingdom. And you see, at the end of the book of Matthew, you see, not only is Jesus born the king of the Jews, but he, what? He dies the king of the Jews. Over his head on the cross is written, what? The king of the Jews. Matthew 27, 11. If you go past the Gospels and into the book of Acts, so now he has risen from the grave and he is reigning over his church in the heavens still, but having an effect on the earth in a spiritual way. You see at the very beginning of the book of Acts. And what do you see at the very beginning of the book of Acts? In chapter 1, verse 3, before he ascends and goes into heaven, he presents himself alive after his sufferings, many proofs appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Just shortly after that, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So the kingdom is still a, a key topic that they're wondering about, and he's teaching them about. So he teaches them for 40 days in a row about the kingdom of God, and then he ascends and goes to heaven. What was on the disciples' mind all throughout the book of Acts? The last thing that Jesus just talked with them about. For 40 days, he spoke with them about the kingdom of God. You go to the very end of the book of Acts, and you see this. It ends intentionally this way. The last two verses, Acts 28, 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. This is talking of Paul uh, ministering to the Gentiles. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. So the kingdom of the risen Savior is the message of the church. And you go to the end, and you see in Revelation, where we have spent much time this summer, 
And you see in chapter 19, verse 16, a king returns to earth. And he comes from heaven. And when he comes, he comes in an array of glory. That there is nothing like it. Something unique is happening. And something eternal is going to happen to this earth. Here comes the establishment of the king's earthly and eternal kingdom. Revelation 22, verse 5, talks about God's kingdom being established on the, on the new earth. And when he talks about it there, it is almost like we've gone back to the very beginning. The Garden of Eden, God ruling and reigning over his creation, heaven and earth perfectly, all creation doing exactly what it's supposed to do. The man, the woman, all those who he's created to, to reign over and subdue the earth. And what do you have at the end of the book of Revelation? You have a restored Eden. You have a new garden of Eden. It is lush and green, a tree of life. The nations are there coming and going, those believing nations that are saved. And you see worship. They're seeing his face. The Lord is their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Your best picture of heaven is the Garden of Eden. Your best picture of heaven is the Garden of Eden because that is what God is doing in and throughout the Scriptures. So studying eschatology really helps us put together the main theme of the Bible. If you ever get lost with this, just know that the main purpose of why this is written is for a coming king. The Old Testament, just preparing the way for that king. The New Testament, here's the presentation of that king. So if you get lost in the Bible, I want to be, be helpful to you and, and to show you that this is all about the kingdom of God. And, and too often and, and unfortunately, we come to the Bible just looking for something for us, right? I just want to find something that applies to my life today to help me get through another day. And you know, I, I, maybe, I need a, maybe I need some kind of devotional that really breaks things down and makes it really practical for me and leaves out the confusing verses and just gives me the, the good verses that, that I can take with me throughout my day. And, uh, and, and we have this warped view of how we approach the Bible. When you look at the Bible, it has nothing to do about you first. It has everything to do with God and his kingdom. And so when you read through massive portions of the Old Testament in your quiet time and you're going, man, this is no use. No, it is useful. It is exactly what God wants to reveal to you. You need to be prepared to live in God's kingdom, God's way. And he's helping you see a bigger and grander picture of the central theme of all scripture. Then things start to make sense. Then application makes so much more sense. Then you see how your salvation is such a cool thing. Then you see how, why did I get included in this? You have a rival kingdom against God, the creator of the universe. And there's darkness and light. There is Satan leading the kingdom of darkness. And there is the eternal God and he has his favored son. And he's the king of, of the kingdom of light. And they're just clashing forces. And this is all this huge, epic battle for eternity. The battlefield is the earth and the heavens. And, and you're just looking at all this going like, whoa, wow, whoa. And then guess what? He includes you. And you get to be a part 
of not just being in the darkness anymore as a rival kingdom, but someone who switches teams. And you get to be in God's kingdom. You get to know the light, to stop fighting against God in your selfishness, but to start living for God in his world, his way. Suddenly our salvation becomes so much more precious when we get our eyes off of us and we put our eyes on the Lord and see what he's doing and who he is. Christ has battled the dominion of darkness victoriously. He is our victor. And he's setting captives free as he storms the gates of hell and springs us free by giving us new hearts that we can see him and follow him and not fight against him, but in a sense fight with him. So let me ask you, I wanted to start big because that's where God starts with this whole topic and thinking about application. Let me ask you, have you switched sides yet on the battlefield? Have you switched sides yet on the battlefield? Are you still living for your own delights and your own desires? Or have you found delight in doing God's desires? Has your heart changed to where you know the difference now? Or is it all fuzzy and you just see it as, I'm trying to live what this guy's saying. Is everybody else figuring it out? No, I didn't think so. <laughs> I keep trying. No, you know a difference. Your heart has changed. You desire new things. Are you still waking up every day thinking about how your day should go exactly your way and everybody else should figure that out? Or are you waking up every day and trying to remind yourself with the truth that this day probably won't go the way that I want it to, but I am here to serve Christ and others Others are not here to serve me. Are you planning on telling God when you're going to meet him face to face about all of the things that you did that were decent acts? Are you planning on telling God all of the things that you could have done but didn't do and you were thankful that you didn't do them so that God could be impressed and let you into heaven? Or are you planning on telling him I'm so sorry. Everything I've done was just to merit hell and to send me far from you. But Christ, he has done it. His righteousness has covered me. That shows that you're living for his kingdom and not your own. When you're leaning on his righteousness and not your own righteousness to get you into heaven. So I would tell you this with the authority that comes from God himself, because it is very clear in his scriptures, determine today, determine today which kingdom you will live in. If you were to go to the beginning of the book of Mark and turn there, please, just for that, that one precious and beautiful verse. There's two that go together, but I see them as one. Mark 1, 14 and 15. the promised Messiah and hero of humanity to reverse the curse and bring blessing and salvation to the heavens and the earth comes from heaven to earth proclaiming a message. He has a message, and this is what he says. 
This message is also referred to as the gospel of God. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. Basically, you're sitting here this morning hearing Jesus tell you, don't wait any longer. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it is about to crush into our our history and to begin the end. And he says, it's here, it's upon us, it's hanging overhead. There's nothing else that we're waiting for to happen before his kingdom comes. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sins. Stop holding them. Stop loving them and believe and trust in this king, Jesus. Transfer your allegiance from the old team to the new team and live for him. This has never been truer than today. Every day we live, there's another day that we can say, now the kingdom of God is closer than it was before. Now it is closer than it was before. If you're to look at 1 Thessalonians 1.9, it says that you must turn from idols to serve the living God. That's what this has to do with. Jesus is saying, are you ready to become a part of the kingdom of God? Are you ready to be saved? It has to do with taking your idols, the things that you worshipped instead of God, and throwing them to the ground and watching them break into pieces. And seeing how vain it was for you to worship those things and to love those things more than God himself. And to admit, I can't believe, I'm I'm an idolater, I'm, I'm a worshiper of something other than the one true God. Forgive me. And turn from those things to serve the living God. Colossians 1.13 says that you need to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's passive. You need to have something done to you. You need to be delivered. You can't deliver yourself. You need to be delivered from the domain of darkness. That is a king term, kingdom term. It's a dark kingdom. And you need to be transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So I would tell you, beg that God would have mercy on you and transfer you out of darkness into light to follow his son, to live in his kingdom. Let me tell you this to those of you who are saved. How kingdom-minded are you? How invested in the kingdom are you? In other words, are you still trying to push God off the throne sometimes? Maybe something didn't go the way that you wanted to, and you start to function as the king again. You, instead of wanting God's kingdom to be in place, are looking to live for your own kingdom. Maybe it's in the home. Maybe it's in the home. That's your kingdom. That's where you control. That's where you manipulate. That's where you abuse your power and your authority. The kingdom of God almost doesn't seem that it exists in the home because you want your kingdom to exist there. 
Maybe it's fighting God for something that he's allowed to happen to you and you don't like what he has done to you and so you fight against him. And you imagine so many different ways that it could have gone other than what God did and how he had it go. And that's you dreaming up a different kingdom rather than submitting to him. Another question, are you living for eternity or for momentary pleasures? Momentary pleasures, they come, they look flashy, you chase for a moment. There's sweetness, but it's followed by bitterness. They're the lustful looks. They're the rolling of the eyes. I don't do that too often, but when I do, I know I've been kind of mean in my heart towards somebody. Uh, It's flirtation. It's sexual immorality. It's seeking the approval of others. Oh, to just be praised and complimented another time by that person. It means so much to me. Are you living for eternity and God's approval? Or are you living for momentary pleasures and approval from men or other things that satisfy the flesh? Do you live for God's glory in all you do or does that rarely cross your mind when you choose to watch a movie, when you choose to purchase a piece of clothing, when you're behaving a certain way at work? When you take your kids to sports, when you go to school, does it cross your mind that you live in God's kingdom and you want to live for his glory? Do you view your relationships as eternal opportunities? Or do you view them as obstacles to your own, your own desires? Do you try to befriend others in order to better share Christ with them? We need to think about some of these things because... I think we're getting the right direction in this first point about some real applications if we want to be heavenly men and heavenly women. The second point I want to provide to you, and they'll come a little faster now, is is prize your position in Christ, not your theology. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Let me be very careful here. Some of you probably read this and trip on this right away. I would too, I think. But let me just explain what this point is about. Prize your position in Christ, not your theology. This is an order of priorities here, is what I'm talking about. This summer, or maybe even before this summer, or even in the future, there's a certain threat when you study eschatology. There's a certain threat. And you could start to think that you have something figured out because you're infatuated or intrigued by... This mysterious and difficult, grand and colorful subject of end times. And you, and you have this almost like unhealthy infatuation with end time stuff. And you become known as that guy you know, uh, or that girl. Um, and, and you become so knowledgeable about all the different viewpoints and the different arguments and counterpoints. And, and you, you just are someone who's known as a debater, an arguer. You're divisive. And you like to win arguments. And it's almost at that point where you start to look and you and you think, but you're you're treating somebody else who's also been positioned in Christ and found newness of life and will be in the eternal kingdom with you, and you're like fighting against them like they're in the kingdom of darkness still. 
They go, well, yeah, that's because they're post-trib, you know. Uh, you know, or yeah, because they're covenant theologians. Well, yeah, because they're amillennial. Well, yeah, because, and you start to just create these fights among believers. And I would say be careful and make sure that you're prizing your position in Christ more than your theological positions. I'm talking about those theological positions that we have talked about that we can get tied up in. I think when you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, before you even get uh, later to the verse that I provided you, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see that in Corinth, there are people who are divided. Chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That almost seems impossible for some of us with other believers. For it has been reported to me by Chloe Coleman, no, Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So not only do you have divisions, but you're fighting about it. Not only are there lines drawn, and you're like, oh, well, that's the that party, and this is the this party. And you're, you're, you're starting to fight about it, my brothers. Verse 12, what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Answer, no. Okay, if Christ isn't divided, the body shouldn't be divided. What's being talked about here is how you handle those issues of difference. You're going to be different. You're going to hold different views than other people, even in this, in this own room. But how do you hold those differences? Do you want to quarrel with them? Do you want to fight with them? That could be causing divisions that is ruining our witness. I follow dispensationalism. I follow covenant theology. I follow the mid-trib position. I follow... Uh, no. Our doctrinal differences should be worked out with great love for each other. Right? Yeah. Great love for each other. Positioned in Christ, we should not be fighting with each other. Chapter 8 same book, chapter 8, verse 1, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's a little bit of a, a discussion there between knowledge that builds up this big-headedness and then this love that builds up others. And then chapter 13. Look at chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to read 1, 2, and 3. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong, or a clanging cymbal. Can't get to these here, but you know, they're you know, kind of back there behind the shield. Right? Um, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, all eschatological theological points, you know, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, wow, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, wow, but have not love, I gain nothing. We need to think about how we disagree with each other. We need to think about how one brother in Christ talks to another brother in Christ about theological differences, and it needs to be said that we are united in love, and we can talk about these things. 
in a patient and kind and not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not insistent on own way, irritable, resentful, rejoice in wrongdoing, rejoice with the truth, that kind of way, if you were to keep reading. Third application I want to provide for you to get you thinking even more. Fear God, not man. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. You can't study end times theology without talk end times theology without talking about hell. You can't talk about the end without considering the coming judgment for sinners. It is God's big plan. The rival rebel kingdom doesn't last forever. It lasts for a time and then it comes to an end. Daniel says that when Christ's kingdom comes, it comes like this stone that's hurled at this big statue, which is resembling the kingdoms of men, and it, and it hits them at the feet and knocks it down and crumbles it, and that stone that hits those, those kingdoms of the earth crushes it, and then that stone grows into this mountain that fills the earth. Christ's kingdom is coming, and it's going to obliterate all other kingdoms of men. If you're still in the rebel, rival kingdom of God, a whole eternity of hurt is coming for you as you actively resist him. And you will fall into the hands of the living God. And that's a fearful thing. So we need to fear God. If you were to tremble at anything, you should tremble at God. That's what Luke 12 4 and 5 says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. I think of Brother Yoon and how he probably thought that many times that he was going to have these guards kill his body, but he wasn't afraid of them. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. Okay, so they've taken your physical life. What else can they do? Nothing? Then they have no power. Verse 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Don't fear man. Fear him who, after he has killed, he has authority then to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Whoa, man can't do anything to your soul. Man can't do anything to your spirit. God can, and he will. He can, and he will. There's a book called Gospel Fear. I recommend it to you. It's by a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. But in his book, Gospel Fear, I'll never forget what he says. It's very short and succinct. It is this. He says, fear fastens the eye. Fear fastens the eye. It's true. Let me prove it to you. Let's say when I got here early this morning to kind of print my stuff and get ready and come through here, I saw a venomous snake underneath the stage up here in the front. It was on this side, though. And some of you are starting to think, uh, lifting your feet, wondering, did it make its way over to my chair? Is it uh, behind me? Is it on the ground? You, you would all start to look down if I meant that. I, I didn't see that, so don't worry. Uh, but if there was some venomous snake or snakes uh, at large in here, and they're just kind of sneaking around by your ankles right now, uh, everybody would look where? Down, right? Because you're afraid. You're like, I'm going to get bit and die in church, by a snake. That doesn't seem right, right? <laughs> so fear fastens the eye. It's true. Think about it this way. In the world, you fear what other girls think about you? 
And so you dress a certain way. And then what do you look for? You look for what they said about what you wore. You look, if you're a guy, and you try to impress a girl, and you do your kind of dorky thing that you do to try to impress a girl, and you look and see, oh, how did it work? You know, how successful I was. Your fear fastens the eye. You're fearing man. You're wanting their approval. You want to see, is it working? When you're in any position of leadership, you're concerned about what other people are saying about you and how you're doing. And so fear fastens the eye, and you're looking for comments, and you're, you're listening for things, and your eye is searching so hard, so fast about the thing that controls you. But if you fear God, where does your eye go? Your eye goes to Him. So, so you mess up. So you say something dumb. So your flirting with the girl didn't work. You know, so, so whatever happened caused you to go, oh man, that's so embarrassing. And you think for a moment, you know what? That doesn't define me. That doesn't need to control me. I fear the Lord who can do far more to me than any man could ever do. And I care about his approval. I care about what his, he thinks. And I'm only going to fix my eye to him, to his word, and keep going. So I would say as we study eschatology, know that as you get into this God who cares and is going to take vengeance into his own hands against all that is wrong, know that he is your biggest threat and enemy if you have not been made right with him. Four, share the gospel today, not tomorrow. Share the gospel today, not tomorrow. Go later in Luke to chapter 19, verse 10. Chapter 19, verse 10. Just to let you in on a little inside baseball here. Uh, Chris Steyer and I were talking about topics to cover for the summer. Remember that, Chris? And we were like, oh, do we really want to talk about eschatology all summer? Um, And we're like, we need to talk about evangelism. And you know, we were like really struggling, going like, man, should, should we do evangelism? Well, evangelism was the runner-up topic for the summer, and, uh, and we were close to going that direction. And we really believe that that's something that our church can grow in. And we need shepherding in, and we need encouragement and challenging in. We decided to stick with the topic of eschatology, not only because we felt like it was you know, right and, and timed for it, but because we believed that if we were really listening as a church, to what God's big plan is for all time, that this summer would actually be about evangelism as well. If you were paying attention well and realizing what's going on with this whole coming kingdom, and you'll realize that that judgment is coming for unbelievers, and you'll realize that there is only one who can reverse the curse and bring blessing and new creation, and it's Jesus you'll be galvanized and stimulated to want to go and share that with other people. And it should lead to conversations about the good news. So the logic really is simple between eschatology and evangelism. It should lead us there. It's the church's mission to gather, to grow, to stay. You remember hearing that? No. No. Because you didn't hear that. 
Okay? The church's mission, you've heard it before here, is to gather, to grow, to what? To go. To gather like we're doing now. To grow, hopefully, like we're doing now. To go. If we never go, then we're not growing. If you're not a disciple maker, then you're not likely a disciple yourself. Right? If you're not caring about making a disciple of somebody else, you yourself are probably not a disciple. Because that's the very nature of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, is to be a discipler of someone else after Christ. If you're not a fisher of men, then you are likely not a follower of Christ. Because when he called us to follow him, he said we would be fishing for men. If you are ashamed, listen up, if you are ashamed to speak of Christ to others, when he returns, he will be ashamed of you. And it will be an indicator that you never transferred kingdoms. If you're not calling people to heaven, are you headed there? We have to think about this very seriously. Luke 19 is very clear what Christ's mission was as he has this interchange exchange with a, a, a man named Zacchaeus. And we find out that the gospel makes little men big <laughs> in one sense. Um, but uh, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we say, I want to follow Christ. Okay, then go do likewise. Seek and save the lost. I can't do that. You're right, you can't do that. Left to your own resources. But you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You've been given this investment of the gospel and this teaching to go and to tell other people about the gospel, this message that came from heaven to earth and shared with you so you could share it with somebody else after believing it. This is exciting and nerve-wracking and terrifying all at the same time. Jesus was clearly on a mission when he was on earth. The natural question is to ask, what is your mission? What's your earthly mission? Let's say you have 25 more years to live. Some of you are like, oh, I got the short end of the stick. Others of you are like, whoa, setting some records. You know, so 25 years left to live, and you want to live it well. And you're thinking through, okay, well, what is my earthly mission? What is my focus? What am I going to use that time for? You might think, well, I want to grow to be holy. Okay, good. I want to love God more. Okay, good. I want to know his word more. Okay, good. I want to really have great fellowship with other believers more. Good. You're not there yet. Get going. Get going. Some of you might think, oh, I want to live a long and healthy, eventful, happy life. I want to have fun. I want to be able to say that I really lived it up. That's my earthly mission, if I'm honest. Maybe some of you are about your family, and it's all about the family. And your efforts don't go beyond your family. You need to love your family, protect your family, absolutely, but don't do it to the detriment of making disciples outside of the family. You who once were lost yourself, but then found, you've come alive. You've transferred kingdoms. 
He's brought you into the new kingdom. So then what? When's the last time you've shared your story with someone? When's the last time you've shared your story about how you were transferred from the domain of darkness into this new kingdom, this kingdom of his beloved son? If you can't remember a time, it's time to start thinking, oh, who, who can I share that with? Jesus sought to love the lost. When you think about the lost, who is on your short list of the lost? Who's your lost list? You need to have a lost list. If you don't have a lost list, you're going aimlessly as a Christian through this life. But you should have certain people that you work with, colleagues or, 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 or students that are classmates or, or friends at, at school or, or people that you meet because of work or people that you meet after work or people that you go and, and meet at clubs with or, um, you know, like racquetball, I mean, you know, or, or, you know, different things that you're finding some commonality with and, and you think, hey, may, maybe that's somebody I could share with. <laughs> I was, I got to admit something here, I was working on finishing up this message and I was working on this point, I think, even, and my family wanted to go down to the pool, so we're like, okay, let's go down to the pool, swim, swim, swim. I'm like, okay, I did enough swim. I'm going to go, like, sit in the shade for a little bit, get my phone out, start working on my sermon. Ding, 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 ding. And I'm like, you guys need to share the gospel. And I'm, like, thinking all these great things to say about going and evangelizing. And there's people walking by me left and right. My daughter is in, in the pool, and there's, like, a hundred of kids from Stewart Creek that are all swimming around her. And she's like, hey, you know, talking to them. And my wife starts talking to this other guy, and I'm thinking, yeah, this needs, <laughs> this needs to wait. I need to apply the message that I want to bring the the next day. So get, dive into that pool and uh, start having conversation. And it's so funny how quickly you can get into talking about eternal things and hear someone say, no, nah, that's not for me. That's good for children, but that's not for me. That's, I'm good. And you're like, ah. We need to think more heavenly minded with every earthly day and have our mission very clear what we're about. You know, my, my mom, I would say, is one of those heavenly women. I could say that without, without a doubt. She's a heavenly woman. You know one of the reasons why? Because every day we got picked up from high school, and I have two brothers, and my mom would kind of come drive to the same exact spot that she dropped us off in the minivan, and then we get we jump into the car, throw our huge backpack on the ground, and probably make a mess right away, and, you know. And 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 you know what she would ask almost right away after, "How was your day, General?" She would say, "Did you get a chance to talk with anyone today?" It was like it became normal to think about how each day was an opportunity to, to share with somebody else at school. And that started to develop in me an awareness for people being lost around me. And so I started to go to school and walk onto campus and see these high school kids walking around with these huge backpacks, you know, and kind of thinking like, that's a person I could share with. I, I know him. Uh, we have the same class together. Oh, I'm you know, becoming friends with that person. Or they just started hanging out with us at lunch. And I started to develop and cultivate a more heavenly mentality through evangelism. There's nothing more exciting than hearing someone say, I'm finally free and forgiven. 
and you sit there with them, and you have all this joy, and you realize that there's joy in heaven at the same time as joy in the earth because someone was just rescued and transferred kingdoms. Fifth, invest your treasures in heaven, not earth. I'll read this very quickly for you. You're familiar with this passage, but it's worth stating and We'll be brief on it, but I want, to, I want you to hear Christ's words as he talks about heaven and earth. He says this in Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If there is a heavenly kingdom coming to earth upon the imminent return of Christ, and it's going to happen at any moment, any moment it could be the end, you should probably look down and see what's in your hands and go, what am I doing with this? What am I doing with that? Looking into your pockets looking into your checkbook, looking into your wallets, looking into your bank statements and going, what am I doing with this? What am I doing with that? Looking into your garages, looking into your driveways, looking into your homes, your attics, and saying, what am I doing with this? What am I doing with this? We shouldn't be thinking, how many things can I accumulate in a mass here on earth and live this great and sweet life? I've been, I've been more stimulated, not by that, that person who seems to be living it up. I've been more stimulated by the few heavenly men and heavenly women who have asked a different question. How light can I travel between here and there? Because heaven is home. That's where my treasure will be also. So sure, own your possessions and realize that you're not even the owner of them. They're God's things but use them for God. Use them for God. Make eternal investments. That means looking at your things and realizing this is God's. How can I use this for his ends? Who's benefiting from this? Is it just me? Or is this somehow benefiting somebody else and pointing them or directing them to eternity more? Are you hospitable? Or are you like, no, I don't want people to come to my house. They make it dirty. You know, are you, are you someone who really looks at your things and goes, hey, you know what? I have an extra one of those. Someone's in need. I can, I can help them. I just lost something, or they're probably going to wreck it. But, you know, this was an opportunity for me to, to show some generosity, some kindness. So I'm going to risk it. Making eternal investments in this life is risky. That's how investments work, right? Risk and return. But the greater the risk, the greater the what? return, reward. You may lose it all in this life, but what you gain in the next life, so, so doesn't matter what you lost here. And the loss is really only a worldly kind of loss. So use your things for Christ and his kingdom and live kingdom-minded, be heavenly-minded with all of your things. Risking it all, that's fine so long as there's a reward from Christ in the end. That would be awesome.
Well, finally, I want to just hit this last point and kind of close really with a, with a, a visual. I think pictures are helpful. And this last point is, is finish the race tired, not rested. I want you to think about this for a moment. The verse that I've included there is 2 Corinthians 5.10, which says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Each one is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, this place of reward. Talking about believers. And you'll be rewarded for what you've done for him. Now, I've, I've always loved running. Running as a child, chasing boys chase girls, girls chase boys. You know, I was just like a runner. It was so fun. And, and then uh, and getting into the sport of soccer, I realized you got to be a runner. And after soccer has been done, I'm still running. And, uh, you know, now I probably classify as jogging uh, because I don't know if I could honestly, before the Lord say I'm running anymore. Um, but, uh, but if you've ever run a race or run competitively in any way, or even raced in, in a competitive way where there, there's an end, you, you think about it in, in such an interesting way. There is, I think there's really something to be gained in thinking through this concept and this illustration of a race in an eternal way. The life that you live now is a race. You're running spiritually. Don't worry. You may not have to run physically. But spiritually, you are running. You're running hard. And guess what? Sometimes it's hard to see the end. And so what do you think of doing? Uh, no, I'm going to sit down. I'm kind of tired. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go over here. Oh, that looked flashy. Or, oh, I just rolled my ankle. Time out. Time out. Is there timeouts in cross country? You know, or, or something, you know, we, we get so distracted, veer off to one side or the other, or get held back by some encumbrance. I shouldn't have eaten so much before the race, you know, or, or whatever it is that, that's causing us to be sluggish or to slow down. And when we talk about eschatology, what you're doing is you're looking at the end. And you're saying, run hard, you're almost there. And that's what I want to tell you, is, is run hard, you're almost there. Because Christ could return at any moment. Either you will die, or either you'll be raptured and rescued up to be with him. And that is this thin ribbon that's stretched right out in front of you. And you may not even realize it, but it could be this far away. And all you have to do, just leaning out, leaning out, leaning out, like you're almost there. I think like this visual kind of helps you kind of visualize it a little bit. Just, just stretching forward. Every muscle, every, every ability to push out further for the end. Knowing, I'm not going to leave anything undone. I'm not going to leave anything unsacrificed in this life. I'm going all out. There's an opportunity for me to, to serve to my hurt. Lean. You're almost there. There's an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody who needs to hear it. But they might think, ill of me. No, lean. You may not have much time with that person. Lean. You're almost there. He's coming back, and we need to think about this. Your pursuit of holiness, that is also geared toward going out and sharing the gospel with people, and being someone who is kingdom-minded, matters. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness 
without which no one will see the Lord. Strive, press on. So the heart of the heavenly-minded longs for one thing, for Christ. And as soon as you bust through that little thin ribbon, you cross from this cursed earth into complete blessing in his presence. I don't want to get to glory and go, all right, it's a good job. You know, no, I want to get to glory and go, oh, you know, I'll lay on the ground, probably prostrate before the Lord, but I'll lay on the ground going, I'm exhausted. That was a hard run. So worth it to be here. I knew it was true. Yes, finally, glory is here. Don't run slow. Run hard after the Lord. Cross the finish line, exhausted for God's glory, for his kingdom. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. We thank you for how good you have been to us as you've shown to us even your greatness. I think about how great you are. It causes us to, to tremble. It causes us to fear you and the right way, giving you the highest place. And God, when we think about your kingdom, which is coming soon, Lord, we don't want to waste time in our little, petty, rival, rebel kingdoms any longer. We want to surrender it all, sacrifice it all, run to our hurt, and be received to glory to have the crown placed on our head, which we will then gladly take it and just give it back to you, thanking you for sustaining us through this short life that we might arrive in glory soon. So Lord, allow us to live each day for our last, for the great day the day of the Lord. Come soon. We love you and long for you and pray you will be with us soon. Until then, give us habits of righteousness and of holiness and of kingdom living for your glory. In your name, amen.